welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve public awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as a part of our post-COVID recovery. So, hi, welcome to our podcast today. So, my name is Janine. I am a first-year Master's of Public Health student in Epidemiology. And I know our intro kind of goes into infectious diseases, but we're actually interested in in all kinds of public health issues. And so for this episode, we're really just interested in talking about the opioid crisis and opioid use in Toronto. So today we have a guest here, uh, Nat Kaminsky. So Nat, did you want to introduce yourself and kind of talk about what you do? Uh, so my name is Nat Kaminsky. Um, I work in harm reduction. So I'm a harm reduction and peer programs outreach supervisor in the region of Peel. Um, I'm also at U of T um, at the Public School of Health doing research alongside Dr. Carol Strike. So I'm a research assistant with um Dr. Kale Strike, which is how uh, I was introduced to you. Um, I'm also the founder of the Peel Drug Users Network, uh, the president and co-founder of the Ontario Network of People Who Use Drugs, and the executive board secretary for the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs. I'm also a mom to a four-year-old that may interrupt us who just came to get a kiss. No worries, Nat. Sounds like you have quite a lot of things going on. Um, okay, so as so, I'll just go over a brief summary of opioid st- statistics. So doing some research online, we kind of found that from 2016 to 2019, about 4,500 people have died from overdoses relating to opioid use in Ontario, with almost 14,000 deaths in Canada around this time as well. And with the onset of the pandemic, this number has um, dramatically um, skyrocketed, reaching about 2,400 2,430 deaths in 2020, which is an increase um, from about 1,500 in 2019. And in the first six months of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen an additional 17,000 years of life that were lost due to opioid overdoses compared to the six months prior. So I guess my first question to you, Nat, is who, like, in your work with, um, in this population, who is most at risk of developing opioid use? Well, I think that a lot of people are, Um, searching for feel-good methods during a really um, crappy time in history uh, of lockdowns, pandemic, uncertainties, job losses, increases of cost uh, of tilled living. 
Um, so I, I think a lot of people are, are looking towards things that can make them feel better. Um, and I mean, we've seen that increase in alcohol sales. We've heard about people's mental health uh, being dramatically impacted in a negative way. Uh, during COVID-19, we've seen an increase in violence against women, gender-based violence, domestic violence um, happening. And so I think a lot of people, you know, are trying to find ways in which they can escape the realities, which are pretty grim lately. Um, but in terms of who's at heightened risk of death, we definitely are seeing folks who are on the margins, who um, are often living in poverty uh, who are street embedded, um, who are being most impacted in terms of overdoses. But then in terms of death, we're actually seeing a lot of folks that due to the stigma that they're facing are dying at home alone. And one of those categories is construction workers. We've seen a whole campaign come out um, by the uh, labor and trades industry called, uh, if you go online, I think it's called the other pandemic.ca um, because of the dramatic increase uh, of lives lost in that particular population and, and age group. Um, we've always seen um, higher numbers in terms of people that would identify as cis men um, in data being overrepresented in deaths kind of in that 30 to 50 year age group. Um, but I think also we know that a lot of people don't show up in data as mm -hmm. the, as a result of things like gender based violence, um, being criminalized for substance use. So being disconnected out of fears of the state getting involved in their home or parenting, reproductive sexual health. Um, and so people just tend to turn inwards and and use an isolation, which heightens their risk of overdose death. And really it's drug poisoning deaths. I think overdose is the wrong language to use mm -hmm. at this point as overdose would suggest someone's taking uh, too much of something. And what in fact we're seeing is a contaminated supply of drugs um, because of their illicit nature, um, you know, poisoning folks that are trying to get opiates and are, are getting a number of different analogs, including benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned seeing a report that um, construction workers, you've seen um, a rise in terms of deaths relating to opioids. Can you maybe um, expand on this a bit more and talk about why do you think this population might be vulnerable? Um, well, I think in any uh, labor or trades job, the likelihood of being injured on the job is that much mm -hmm. greater. Um, I, while the pay of of those jobs tends to be better than minimum wage, um, they aren't as stable or as frequent uh, people, you know, day to day, the weather changes and that can impact your ability to pay your rent or your bills that week. And so when you're living in 
that kind of like instability in a way, I think that you're going to find people that are often going to work while injured because they have to, um, and they're, they need something in order to be able to do their job. Um, it's also an industry that, uh, unless you're unionized, you're often working for cash, um, and you're unable to report injuries on the job. Um, you're often being taken advantage of and you're being, um, you're working way too many hours, uh, and having to get through those types of shifts. But then it's also really stigmatized within that industry, um, to be somebody that, if you're known as somebody that uses substances that can impact your ability to stay employed. Also, it's a very small world when you're working in um, like a niche industry of say um, trades where, you know, you're working in a certain environment, I guess, like the GTA, let's say, mm-hmm. um, where you can get around like, oh, don't hire that person, they're X, Y, Z. Um, and when you're having to fight people for cash jobs, you know, any advantage over, unfortunately, people tend to fight each other instead of systems that take advantage of them mm-hmm. um, in, as a survival technique. Um, and so I think that any edge you have over somebody else, um, can mean your survival over theirs. Um, and when you have industries that have large cash areas like that, where people are being paid under the table, we see those kinds of things happening, but yeah, I I mean, I, I think it does have a lot to do with the instability, taking advantage of people within that system, and then um, the likelihood of being hurt on the job. Mm. And do you think that this risk has kind of been heavily impacted with the pandemic? And what kind of factors? I think you mentioned things like the uh, mental health aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic, but other things like um, public health restrictions or changes in um, drug supply. Like, Do you think that has also kind of led to the increases in opioid deaths that we see? Definitely. I think, you know, uh, I think about my harm reduction job, uh, which, um, you know, I, I work with in the context of Peel and we saw the shutdown of borders and the price of drugs skyrocketing. We've never seen that. Uh, I'm somebody that identifies as someone um, with lived and living experience of substance use. And in all my years, the cost of drugs have always remained the same. It's like a a stable, I guess, priced market where you know exactly what $40 or $60 or $80 is going to get you. And we saw increases of up to 400 times on certain drugs, right? So, you know, buying... um, a ball, which is three and a half grams of something uh, like cocaine, which would have been $200, $240. That went up to $350 because you were paying point for point. Also, the quality of those substances was lost in that process as people had to step on their product in order to have product with uncertainty of when they would be able to get more um, in terms of like what dealers were doing, I guess. Um, 
and then you know like methamphetamines um we went from having like really high quality methamphetamine to having uh, methamphetamine that was like um house cooked or bottle cooked um so without the presence of a lab and like somebody with the scientific background in order to produce that chemical now reproducing it in substandard conditions with substandard product because the items that they would need in order to say bake like a cook a good uh, product were unavailable to them with the, the borders closing and then crystal meth went from you know costing like $40 a gram to costing 160 which is unheard of um so uh i i also think like if we're thinking in terms of opiates the same thing started occurring where um because of the shutdowns that were occurring within borders there is a lot of home cooks and and home scientists having to produce drugs that people need um because otherwise you know, the, the drug drug market doesn't stop. Um, it, it's, it, it's reached a point where it, it, drugs will always have always been here and they will always be here. And there is that drastic need because of people's tolerances and something like an opiate that has severe physical impacts on somebody's ability to, to even just get out of bed. Not to say that they're sleeping because they're in excruciating pain. And so I think all of those things had an impact on the quality, the availability, the cost of the drugs that we were seeing during the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's um, incredibly you know, shocking to hear just how much um, change has kind of happened, especially, you know, hearing about a 400 um, increase in price, like that's insanity, like that's insane. And so I guess that kind of leads to my next question is, um, can you talk to me a little bit about, I guess, how we would deal with this crisis in terms of harm reduction and why is harm reduction so important in dealing with um, drug use? So first of all, harm reduction, that language really belongs to the drug market and the consumption of um, narcotics and psychoactive substances outside of, you know, coffee, sugar, um, caffeine. Sorry, I already said that. But anyways, (laughs) um, what we're talking about is um, the use of drugs and how do we reduce the harms that are associated with those drugs in particular. And so oftentimes when we think about drugs, we think about like they're bad. We've been um, programmed to believe that they're these very um, demonized agents that when people consume them, they, they lose all um, self to them. Um, And that's just not true. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, people are using these substances for 
like medical reasons uh, where we were talking about like construction workers being physically hurt, but not having the ability to say, go to a doctor and get a prescription or being able to even afford that kind of care because of being um, exploited within an industry that has a large sector of folks being paid cash under the table. Um, And so with harm reduction, uh, we also need to understand that people use things for pleasure. Uh, anything that produces pleasure in our bodies, someone can be addicted to. And we, we, we know that with food, with shopping, with gambling, with sex. Uh, and drugs are no different, right? It's what the biggest harm that comes out of substances um, and illicit substances is the criminalization of people. You can't send drugs to jail. You can't steal drugs, children from them. You can't um, punish and denounce and um, show drugs, tough love. Uh, That happens to people as a result of being substance users. And so oftentimes, you know, when we think about people who fall within that stereotype of, of what a drug user is, right? They're a criminal. Well, if the drugs weren't criminalized, then their behavior wouldn't be criminal. Um, And if they weren't seen as a criminal, they would have adequate health care, which would allow them the ability to stay well, which would dissolve the idea that people who use drugs don't care about their bodies, don't care about their health. They want to die. That's not the case. It's a lot of stigma that keeps people from being able to have equity and access to things like hospital care or dental care or money. You know, oftentimes people who use drugs have lost housing, had to restart multiple times because they've been outed as a drug user. So they've lost their employment. They've their landlords kick them out. Um, their family has disowned them. They've, they've had somebody like paternalistically take away their ability to make it, choices for themselves because they're not of right mind. And so if we were to do that to somebody who wasn't a drug user, if we were to take away their ability to get, get healthcare, if we, we had the ability to take away someone's children just because they shop too much or we think they shop too much, if we were, if we were able to kick somebody out because they go to the casino too many times or buy too many scratch tickets. If somebody had to restart their lives multiple, multiple times over at a certain point, all of that turns inwards onto someone. And so being somebody who used drugs, I, for the longest time, blame myself for why the system didn't work. Why I, I wasn't trying hard enough when I was, you know, given $520 a month to live on. It was somehow a deficit of character for me, as opposed to 
thinking that the system actually doesn't serve me. And it took a lot of years to get out of that mindset and to begin to understand what being criminalized really does and the impact that has, right? I used to go into the hospital and try to get hospital care and have security violently remove me out, beat me up. And then the police would show up and threatened to arrest me if I didn't leave. Yet I was visibly ill and needing health care, right? I, I literally had this happen where I was in organ failure and a doctor told me to go get some Lubriderm and to get off the needle. And I had had a like horrible blood infection that had gone. I'd gone into organ failure and sepsis because of. And security threw me out. And the police threatened to throw me in jail if I didn't leave the property. I was thrown out in a hospital gown in the winter. No shoes, nothing by security. And the police told me to move it along. And so how many times can that happen to somebody before somebody says to them, well, you have to think maybe it's your choices. What what was your part in this? And really I didn't have a part in that. I deserve health care the same way anybody else does. And so, you know, when we think about the impacts of using criminalized drugs, what those are, it's really criminalizing people. And then the impacts of that are tremendous and cause people like detrimental impacts on their health, their ability to form relationships, their ability to maintain friendships and their ability to survive and then be able to like, even if you're in the system, the system doesn't provide anybody enough to move them through life back to what they had prior to losing everything. You're constantly left in survival. And how are you supposed to feed yourself on 520 when your rent's 775 a month? Like everybody believes like, oh, Canada's got this great system of Ontario Works and free healthcare and OW um, and ODSP, but we're not given enough to survive. We're given just enough to be in crisis. And that is what makes it so dangerous when you don't apply harm reduction. Because when you're applying abstinence, somebody could easily believe that all of those things are their fault. And so when they relapse or when they use again, because you know they're, they're seeking that pleasure, and they do that within an isolated state because they're afraid of people finding out they're at heightened risk of dying. Our drugs are that toxic now that nobody should be using alone because you can have, you know, a gram of the same drugs and use them five times and be fine. But on the sixth time, it's a hot spot. And that is where the condensation of fentanyl and carfentanyl exists. And that will kill you. And so if you're too scared to reach out, or if you don't feel accepted by society, you're going to use alone. And that is how, like, within my role, I, 
I find people dead on the other side of doors. So harm reduction is really applying uh, and giving somebody their best understanding um, and the information and knowledge they need in order to make the best decisions for themselves. And looking beyond someone's substance use and instead working with them to find what it is they, what goals they want to reach. So I'm not focused on abstinence. Uh, let's figure out your housing together and let's find you housing that you're not going to get kicked out of because you you're found out as somebody uses drugs. And oftentimes we see that when people's environments change, they are six more, far more successful and they're able to have a far more successful relationship with their drugs or with their sobriety. I think it was the, the rat experiment that showed us it's not about the substances, it's about connection. And so if your environment is gloomy, of course, you're going to find a way of medicating that and pro providing yourself some pleasure. And if you create an opportunity for connection and community, people are more likely to get engaged in that, in that and, and not rely so much on substances for their pleasure. Do you think that there has been a change or an improvement in the way that the government has kind of tackled drug use? And do you think that, like, what more do you think needs to be done? So I think that's a difficult question. So um, I think that we're slowly beginning to shift some of that. I don't think it's quick enough. And unfortunately, the toxicity of our drugs is becoming that much greater and the movement into some of these long-standing solutions that people who use drugs have been telling um you know healthcare professionals and government officials and we we've we've been telling and giving the answers for so many years and now we've got so much research and science behind us that it's no longer it's no longer that gray literature it's no longer that unreliable data right because th these are proven um, scientific uh, health-based approaches and interventions that we know work. And we're just not implementing them at the same speed at which this um, poisoning crisis is taking lives. And so we need we need a lot more bravery coming from our government officials um, who are afraid of losing their support from people that have bought into like this old school way of thinking of you can tough love the drug addict out of a human being where actually no, that tough love is creating um, trauma responses in somebody in, who's forced to live in survival with abandonment issues, who lives in isolation and is now using to medicate, like you're actually causing greater harm. But there is that other part of society that 
exists because that that's been the norm for so long and our government officials aren't willing to do the brave things that they need to do in order to decriminalize drugs and so we're constantly putting band-aids on gunshot wounds and yeah these responses would have worked 10 years ago we are a decade behind and if we look at like british columbia the safe injection sites that they had that they were already too late then right and so at what point are we going to get somebody in office that's going to look to places like portugal and that's going to look towards their own government's decisions to um, decriminalize alcohol, to decriminalize marijuana, right? Like that's the direction in which we need to go in. And that's not the direction we're headed. We're headed into these interventions that we know will work for some, but unfortunately the crisis will be too great. And we you know, are always just dropping pennies into this great sea of need, right? And so, like, our safe supply programs have been set up to deal with the most vulnerable. Well, the folks who need a preventative approach are not able to access that because only those at the greatest harm are able to qualify because of the amount of money that's gone into that program. And so by the time we get those folks on the list, we have a whole new sea of folks who are now at heightened risk. And and that's just continuing. Like we haven't even began to talk about where youth are in this. And so what is going to happen when youth aren't included in harm reduction, safe injection sites, safe supply programs, what, what's going to happen when we treat people within the 16 to 26 category with a 13-year-old paintbrush, right? Those folks don't have agency over themselves. They aren't able to participate in programming. The shelters in which they go to, the social work programs that they qualify for, they don't have a harm reduction understanding. And so those folks are going to be adults one day. And those folks will be the folks that we are losing. And we're beginning to see younger and younger dying. And so I, I want to say that, yeah, we've changed how we talk about stuff, but I don't think that we've changed how we address stuff. We need our government to go all in, not baby steps. And, you know, I get that the baby steps are easily digested by the greater population, but one day that population will blame our government because their loved ones will be dead and they'll begin to understand that their tough love that they were always taught to lead with was the wrong response. And we see that with groups like Mom Stop the Harm who are doing as much as they possibly can to educate people about the harms 
that happen when you criminalize folks, when you stigmatize and when you show tough love instead of toughening it out and loving someone, thinking that that will cure them. So, you know, I I show great respect to groups like Mom Stop the Harm for standing up uh, as someone who got a tough love approach. I've been able to heal a lot of like resentment and move past it with my own family to be at the place where I am, which is connected back within my social circles and my family circles, because I've gotten to even understand why they thought that way. Um, But for the longest time in my life, it was really lonely out there and drugs were my warmth. They were my security. They were my ability. And without them, my mental health as a result of my PTSD would have driven me to far worse outcomes. And so I think drugs have a place in society. Um, and we know that because, you know, you can go and have a drink at a bar. And if you get too inebriated, you know, someone at that bar has been trained to say to you, let's call you a taxi. Let's not give you another drink. You might do something that might cause great harm to yourself or others. And really harm reduction programs and safe consumption sites are that love, right? Of saying, um, here's all the information you need to know here's what we can do to help you. Now it's your choice, what you want to do, and I will be there to support you. And it's funny how it's acceptable when it's a bar, but it's not acceptable when it's safe supply or when it's safe consumption sites. It's really not that far of a reach. It's in fact the exact same thing because people were dying of alcohol poisoning when our alcohol was criminalized. And we're just talking, you know, 50, 60 years back. So, uh, I mean, it's not like it's that ancient history that folks can't remember it and apply that same thought process here. That's a really interesting perspective to hear. I actually read something similar online that was kind of talking about how bars um, are essentially safe, safe consumption sites for alcohol in that, you know, um, you have people who kind of stop you when you drink too much. Um, They will call cabs for you to get home safe. So it's really interesting to kind of look at that perspective of how, you know, alcohol is so... um, I guess, accepted nowadays compared to other drugs that are so um, stigmatized and seeing how that kind of parallels. Um, And I think something that's interesting too is that, you know, even though we have these safe consumption sites, um, there might still be some people who may not have access to these sites. So my next question is, how do we reduce barriers around access to um, harm reduction services and treatment? And how do we engage people who use drugs and how do we kind of bring them into these spaces? I I think that first and foremost, um, community needs to lead the way. And so if, if I'm going to a space, 
I want to see other people who use drugs leading the way there. I want to see trans, non-binary, black, brown, uh, and indigenous bodies serving community. Uh, I want to see familiar faces from the community there. I want it as a part of service and healthcare within, you know, my home base area. Um, I don't think that I should have to travel in order to get that support. I, I think that we also have to take into consideration what makes spaces unsafe for people. And oftentimes it's misogyny, uh, it's gender-based violence, it's a transphobia and homophobia, it's anti-Black racism and colonialism um, that with keeps community for, from being able to access those spaces. And so we really do need to flood the system in order for more of these places to be normalized. And so that I can go into my favorite drop-in and use within that space as a safety measure. You know, everybody there should be trained on overdose response. There should be a space for someone to use that allows them to use in a hygienic way and in a way that they know that if something happened, the people within that space are willing and able to respond to a crisis. These are first aid tactics. If I was to fall down into in the mall and have a heart attack, there is a security guard on staff that knows how to respond to that health crisis. And that shouldn't be any different um, within community spaces and services and supports. We need to normalize spotting. We need to normalize remote services. We need to normalize parents using drugs because whether you know, uh, Jane goes home and has a glass of wine after her kids go to bed or does a toke of crack. What does it matter as long as Jane is first and first, foremost not within a parenting role and is not inebriated past the point of being able to make a good decision? And oftentimes the harm within the drug is the criminalization aspect. It's the fact that Jane's having to use in isolation. It's the fact that Jane's having to hide that from people. And so she's probably not getting support. It's the fact that Jane is having to buy within a criminal market where, where things like poverty, survival, and crisis negate the risk factors in going and obtaining drugs within that market, right? Oftentimes, violence is a part of that, that lifestyle because people are protecting the very little they have. And so all of those things come into play for Jane. But if Jane wanted to have a glass of wine, she can at the grocery store with her child in the cart can pick up 12 bottles and nobody knows whether or not Jane's drinking all 12 or just having a glass because she's had a hard day. Right. And so I think it is a lot of busting um, the myths. Uh, you know, we hear awful things being said, like um, meth makes people into zombies. For some people, it normalizes them. For some people, it makes them more productive, more confident. And if they're not hurting anybody while they're using, 
then why are they going to be punished for it? Oftentimes, you know, a violent encounter is the result of violence in a different way being given to that person under the influence, like a security guard showing up outside their doctor's office before a doctor comes. That does, that's, that's not a good feeling, you know? And once it's happened to you 400 times and you're battling uh, an awful infection and feel like you're dying, yeah, you're going to get angry, right? That's a normal response. And that yet we've completely demonized people for some of these things. And as opposed to understanding where a lot of it comes from. So, yeah, I think that it is, you know, making these services more readily available, letting the communities, the appropriate communities and services and supports be a part of building and delivering those services and then attacking some of these um, myths and stigmas and, and bias that have been painted onto what a drug user is and isn't you know a doctor's office doesn't have to do a community consultation or address the crime levels or address the littering in the community in order to open up practice yet a safe consumption site is expected to you know, ensure people's property taxes don't go down, uh, clean up the area, lower crime rates, um, make the space better looking visibly, uh, appease all homeowners and business associations. Yet that's not the case with any other health related service. It really is being on this side of things, being somebody who, as a result of opportunity and killing myself to get out of that that self-hatred and those cycles um, of of hatred and finally believing like I deserve something, I, I was able to get out. Opportunities came, I seized them, and I ran with them. Those opportunities are hard to come by. That's the reason a lot of people are stuck. And when I see these these ideas constantly coming up and these forums of hate occurring, when people are just just trying to 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 live and get basic needs met, and I hear things like they've made their choice, they deserve to die. I I don't know if I could even put into words what that grief feels like and how much PTSD I hold because I've been somebody that has had bricks thrown at her. I've been somebody who's been egged, you know, because I was a a sex worker that was visibly walking in, in known strolls and, and attacked by business owners and the police would laugh at me. I've been thrown out of hospital for getting health, for trying to access healthcare. And then to hear, I don't deserve to live. And that coming from another healthcare professional or, you know, a, 
a neighbor that shares the same school as my child. Like that's such an ugly part of society that unfortunately we didn't know better because we weren't listening back then. I think, you know, 20 years ago, people who used drugs were saying we were going to get to this point and now we're here. And how different would life look if we were listened to 20 years ago? Yeah, that's that's honestly a lot. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. That sounds so, so hard. I can't believe you went through all that. I just have one last question, just being cognizant of time. Um, I kind of, I'm quite interested in when you were talking about looking at Portugal's model. And so I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about um, decriminalization and kind of where do you see that standing here in Canada? And do you think that it's something that can be implemented in the future? Oh, this is such a hard question. So um, I think that uh, first and foremost, decriminalizing drugs um, is the very least we could do at this point. Um, And if we looked at it as a healthcare issue and instead flooded money from justice system into healthcare systems, we would be better off um, because we really do need more access to not only harm reduction services and safe consumption sites, but people do need treatment. You know, I remember I remember asking to go uh, into rehab and I was part of an addictions Ontario works team. And they were like, oh, you're willing to go? And I was like, of course I'm willing to go. And they were like, fantastic. And I just kept calling back. And then my worker said, you don't need to call back. It's at least a year's wait. And I went, I'm not going to live a year. Like, I, I'm i not going to have a phone. Like, I, I'll have 17 phone numbers by the time you call me. I might not even be in this city I I could be dead by then. Like, so, I I mean, I think people need um, the ability to get access to the things they need and want in a timely and impactful and effective way. I also think that people deserve access to safe and reliable drugs. And I don't think that needs to be within a medicalized model only. Um, I am part of a medicalized safe supply model now that I had to fight for um, because of the limited spots available. I think our system is overwhelmed and that we, one, don't have the right drugs available to people through a medical market. But if I want to go get a drink of alcohol, I am able to decide what flavor what consistency, what type, what what bar, what barleys and brews and wheats are used in it. Is it vegan or is it not? Is it organic? We don't have those choices right now. And so, uh, you know, there there is a great debate amongst people who use drugs and their allies. Like, do we need just a decriminalized model or do we need a legalized model? 
I am not a believer of the legal system. Um, I think that if we say we want legalization, we will get another ineffective pot model, which we have seen a lot of barriers, issues, and punitive measures that have occurred in the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana in Canada, and that it has been really problematic. So until I can trust the legalization, um, you know, things being passed as bills and then laws, uh, I would say that we need a decriminalized model. We need access within a consumer market to the drugs that people want need. And that consumer market must have a regulated way to ensure the consistency, toxicity, uh, and impact of the drugs that they are selling. You know, uh, we have labels on booze, on food, on cigarettes, on gambling tickets, on, you know, uh, even uh, around sex, we see, um, like, especially around fetishism that happen fetishes within sex, we we do see, you know, um, some uh, warning inconsistencies uh, around um, making sure people have all the information before they join into, say, BDSM, right? And so uh, I think that we need that same availability of information and access and regulation around our drugs, not within a legalized market. Um, or a legal market, I should say. Um, you know, we saw what happened with sex workers and Bill C-36 uh, turning into the Protected Peoples and Communities Act where sex workers won and we had uh, our judicial system say, yes, this law is harmful and it it produces harm and it's unconstitutional. And then we got something even worse in its place that causes worse harms and causes further isolation, fur further working in, you know, more dangerous predicaments with clients um, now being the ones that are criminalized but everything to do with sex work is also criminal other than the act of having sex essentially for free. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that uh, our legal system needs to be more transparent and far more responsive um, to the community's needs. Uh, sex workers were... I don't want to say listened or heard, but were consulted and then ignored completely. Um, and I think that the same thing would occur if we tried to do that within a legal process um, for the drug market. So at this point, I am for the decriminalization of drugs and the ready availability of regulated, available, reliable drugs uh, within a consumer market uh, that, you know, 
allows people access to the drugs that they want and need uh, in a safe and consistent way. And hell, maybe we can even fix some of the awful things we've done to other countries while we're at it in the ways in which we've attacked the drug market. It's not an easy answer. And uh, Portugal doesn't have a perfect mechanism. Um, And I think, you know, that goes back to bravery. We need some bravery. We need some leadership. We need we need to do something that'll save lives because we've been kicking around, you know, pebbles into the ocean uh, for far too long. And all my friends are dead. I don't think I have any long term friends left. Um, actually, one of my last I started working in harm reduction 10 years ago. Um, And one of my last clients uh, died three weeks ago of sepsis out of fear of going to the hospital. I don't have clients that I've known for 10 years anymore. Service users, the last one died of a blood infection in 2022. Wow. So it's not just the drugs that are killing us. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's something that's so important to um, as health researchers as well for us to understand. And that's something that we kind of touch upon in our courses. So we learn a little bit about a, the social side of health and how that can determine um, health outcomes. And so it's things that are not just like your biological like mechanisms, but also like how does your how, how does having um, affordable housing and how does having um, a stable source of income impact your health as well? And I think all of that put together, it's very, very important for us to understand as well. Yeah, people need to have their determinants of health make it met. Um, and they need to be a part of community. Mm-hmm. And when people are demonized um, and criminalized and rejected and shown tough love by community, by services, by family, by friends, um, by healthcare, um, they live on the outskirts of society. And so how are we supposed to react? How are we supposed to exist when we are literally living in a war amongst society, but nobody can see it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's incredible how even just driving, you know, beneath the gardener as a child, I used to look and there was grass and we used to have skating rinks and it was vibrant and, and now there's just tents. So many people just living. That's like, that's not okay. And yet we drive past them day in, day out and people don't even see them anymore. Mm -hmm. We've become too okay with being the haves at the expense of the have-nots. That's a 
really, really important point. I think that, you know, sometimes for me, like I live in the, I live downtown in Toronto and like oftentimes you will pass by people on the streets who, you know, are just sitting there, you know, it's, it's cold, it's minus 40, but you know, it's, it's so hard and to think about like what kinds of um, things that they're going through at the time, it, it must be so difficult, but you know, it's something that I think about a lot as well, but yes. And mm-hmm. it like, if anybody's listening, do not give somebody a granola bar. Do not think that you're less of an asshole because you go and give somebody shampoo, conditioner, uh, and a sandwich as opposed to giving them $20 because you don't know what they need to survive. Mm-hmm. And what they choose to do with that $20 is none of your business. And if you think it is your business and that you're somehow doing them a favor by taking away their ability to choose for themselves and you're able to walk away feeling good, that like is awful. You know, you don't show up to work and your boss doesn't decide to split your bills up in order to make sure that all of them are paid. You're given that, that autonomy. And so people who I I often hear like, you know, oh, well, I, I don't want them to spend that money on drugs, but what if they need drugs in order to stay awake Mm -hmm. so that they don't get raped? What if they need drugs in order to stop wanting to feel like they need to die? Like your sandwich isn't going to help. So um, for anybody listening, I think, you know, especially from U of T, there's a lot of poverty around campus. um, And campus, in fact, campus areas are quite rich. And so um, don't be blind to it. Don't give away your lunch. Um, You know, if someone uh, wants to eat and you want to offer that, but but don't think that, you know, like $5 or $20 um, that you need to decide that for somebody else. Um, And don't turn a blind eye to it. I think that, part of the problem with society is it's too easy to close the door and say, you know, that's not me because it can be you very easily. And you have no idea what it feels like to be stepped over. So, and, and to exist and, and nobody can see you. It's just such a difficult way of living life day to day. Um, and you know, that also has a lot to do with stigma and, you know, some of those inherent beliefs that we were fed as children. Like if you work hard enough, you know, like that, that's not true. Um, for people who have generational trauma and and generational, uh, multi-generational poverty, it's not as easy as just toughen it up and buckling down, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it, it is um, privilege 
you know, that lends to someone's success. And when you've been stripped of all of yours because of being criminalized um, or being demonized by society, it's that much harder to get access to the very basic things that other people get access to. Yeah. I really hope I did a good job in addressing some of these things because I feel like um, as a person with lived experience, I obviously have uh, a really um, personal perspective on this that is something that's really passionate Mm -hmm. um, in my core and in my being. But then I'm also a service provider that has to navigate a lot of the same systems. And I think that we have a lot of good people in the system. It's the system itself that's broken. And that broken system is why people burn out and why people disconnect from from seeing some of those things. Um, Yeah, we need brave leadership. I don't know, fingers crossed, next elections will get them, but... I have a feeling, well, anyways, we won't go there. (laughs) Well, thank you for your perspective, Nat. I think that you offered a very personal and very um, interesting um, story. And I feel like I learned a lot just from this conversation. Definitely more than just, you know, reading articles online anyway. So thank you, listeners, for listening to Infectious Info. You can find us online on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Infectious underscore Info.